Can you believe it? It's the end of 2023. By the time this episode's out, Christmas Day should be a week today, so I hope by now you've got all your shopping done. Now, this has honestly been a great year for us. In terms of social chain, we've done some amazing work with our clients like Jameson and General Mills. And in terms of social minds, we held the first of many in-person live events and we took home two awards at the 2023 Lovies. Not only that, we've also got to speak to another incredible batch of guests in this 2023 season. Specsavers, Formula One, The Washington Post, and that's just a few. So for this episode, our last of the year, I thought we could revisit some of my favorites and reflect on the hot topics that were on all of our mouths this year. First up, we're actually starting with our most recent interview with Mob's head of content, Jake. Now, Jake joined us in our London studio to chat to us about differentiation in a crowded category. In Mob's case, food. Uh, so Mob, what we try and do, we are trying to give the creator as much control as they want as possible. Um, and what I find is the more people that are involved in the processing of the content, the more polished it looks mm-hmm. and the more slick it looks and suddenly the less accessible it looks Mm -hmm. and I often find even like the nuances of a camera moving or a phone moving at the same time as you can see both chef's hands in the image shows that there's a video producer there or a camera person there and it's like little nuances like that that are like oh that's unaccessible because they've obviously got a whole team behind it so it's we're trying to like give off the feeling well we are giving off the feeling it is literally (laughs) they're developing a recipe they're testing it they're showing their friends and then they're they're filming it themselves and they're there sat in the edit giving their opinions and they're the ones they're the most talented people we have they're the ones that are thinking how is this going to play out how am i going to make this content as exciting as possible those decisions aren't being made by other parties and i think that's what happens at a lot of publishers more people more opinions provides a slickness and that slickness actually takes away from that creative vibe and feeling imperfection is perfection type vibe you know Mm -hmm. you want you want it to feel real basically i said it in the episode with jake but me and my team spend so much time just simply reassuring clients that lo-fi doesn't mean low quality and we definitely do need a new term for it because what it really means is native and just stripped back Taking a creator-led approach means making your content look and feel like one person could have made it, like we said with Jake. And if you give creators the respect that they're owed, then you know that that doesn't actually mean it has to look slapdash because the creators that we as brands should be looking up to are the ones who make great stuff. The point that Jake made there and the point to emphasize here is that when it's apparent that there's a whole team behind it, it just becomes that much more inaccessible and unrelatable. I am talking about your everyday content here, so BAU, not big social campaigns. Obviously, we need shoots for those larger scale projects or more ambitious activations. But what I think Jake was able to summarize really succinctly and hit the nail on the head with is something that we all know to be true, but it's a trap that brands and marketers continue to fall into, which is that just too many cooks spoil the broth. And we know that too many voices and too many opinions don't just water down the concept our uh, acd another jake calls it turning an ice sculpture into an ice cube what mob jake is saying here is that actually too many voices and too many people in the room is making the content look like it's been thought out too much and therefore that's making it unrelatable to the audience Creatively, I can empathize with our listeners here because it's something that me and my team do every day. So we know how hard it really is. But the trick is really to make something that realistically does have a lot of people involved and does have several layers of amends, but it needs to look and feel like it doesn't. 
it still needs to look like one person made it. So if you want a checklist to grade your content against in 2024, let that be on it. Now we're going back to August when I was joined remotely from Boston by Scott, head of business development and creative partnerships at Doing Things Media, who managed several of the top influencers in the USA, including Recess Therapy, who's the creator behind viral sensation, The Corn Kid. Of course, we talked about that, but mostly we talked about where the creator economy is heading and what the impact will be for legacy brands. It's a slippery slope for sure. And I've seen this happen so many times where there is a creator who begins to work with a legacy brand, right? It's very transactional. Here is X number of dollars in exchange for, you know, branded content and posts and promotion to your audience. And as that creator gets bigger and bigger and bigger, some become synonymous with that product category, right? They're purchasing a ton of volume to that third party brand by virtue of the relationship they have with a creator uh, to the point where it pours over and they realize, oh shoot, I could probably do this on my own. You're starting to see that happen more and more often. So. To be quite frank, in my opinion, what I think the best thing these legacy brands can do um, to avoid sort of churn and flight risk is ownership, is equity, because that plays both offense and defense. Offense, of course, is leveraging that involvement to help sort of further and grow your brand. But defense is, hey, I'm giving you a huge chunk of this business and you're incentivized to stick around. So it ultimately pays off longer term. Why would you leave to do something on your own? Um, so I'm starting to see that become an offering to creators for the very first time. And it's off, it, it, it's sort of ironic because at least from my POV, a lot more creators were talking about equity as just like a term, as a thing. Two years ago, no one understood what that meant or like the value or magnitude of receiving equity in a business. But it's becoming incredibly normalized. And I think in large part, it's because it's being offered to creators. So when you sort of consider how you know, an influencer partner could potentially serve as a competitor to you over longer you know, periods of time. The best way to retain them is to give them a very strong reason to stick around. And obviously that's cash, but further, I think it's the idea of having a piece of that business and a piece of that upside. And then even further, like deeply ingraining them in the brand. So as opposed to potentially just promoting, you know, a standard product of theirs, how can you co-brand this? How can you put some of their branding and likeness onto a product that they feel they have sort of more ownership and control towards. So there's a number of factors, um, but you gotta give them skin in the game. Otherwise they're gonna find another reason to pursue something that benefits them longer term when they have a ton of skin in that game. Now, out of all the episodes we're revisiting today, this is one of my favorites, not just because Scott's energy was so contagious, but because his experience actually allowed him to give us a very frank and very unbiased view of where the creator landscape is headed. I hear the same things all the time from people when it comes to how brands should approach creators and how we should work with them. So things like give them creative control, pay them properly. Those are the obvious things that really should be old news by now. And because this is old news to Scott, him and his team are just way ahead in terms of what they're seeing with their creators. So he was able to present us with something that I think a lot of brands won't see coming unless they catch up. And that is that working with creators the way that brands currently do just isn't going to work for much longer. One of the things we said in this episode has been true for a long time, which is that the same piece of branded content will be the best performing post on the brand's page and the worst performing post on the creator's page. So you have to ask what's in it for creators and why should they keep lending us their audiences? Another vein to this is the rise of creator-led brands, businesses, and products. Now put yourself in the creator's shoes. They're gonna be thinking, why would I promote your product when I can build my own and promote my own? Of course, not every creator can successfully build a business, but the good ones can with help from people like Scott. 
when I asked Scott that question, he said the point is if enough big names do build their own brand, that's going to be what all of them are aiming for if it isn't already. Brand deals aren't what these creators strive for when they start making videos and posting them to their channel. Brand deals are just a means to an end for them. They pick up the phone and they start making things because that's their entrepreneurial spirit and their instincts kicking in. They've looked at a nine to five job and said no, they'd rather work for themselves. So if that was your goal and that's what you had in mind, why wouldn't you set your sights on, say, a clothing line, a makeup or skincare range like Kylie Jenner and Hailey Bieber have done, or even a line of hot sauces like Sean Evans? Things like books, restaurants, coffee, athleisure, all of these creators have passions that you can bet that they want one day to create something more tangible around. And chances are, whatever category their passion sits in, the brands in that category are the ones that they're seeking brand deals from right now. So as we said, brand deals are a financial means to an end for creators, but they might not always be. Scott says ownership and equity in the brand is the answer to this, giving creators an incentive to stick around. In the US, it's becoming incredibly normalized. And the fact is, creators are your competitors. So for me, one solution that became apparent in this conversation with Scott is not relying on a creator to give your campaign reach or reaching people through their audience, but focusing on building your own audience instead. I think where we need to get to is studying what makes their content so effective and then emulating that in our own methods. I think I've mentioned them before on this podcast, but Paper Magazine, albeit they're a publisher, not a brand, plucked one of their more charismatic employees out of obscurity and made her the face of their TikTok account. They literally made her a creator and she now has hundreds of thousands of followers, but all of her content is original stuff from Paper Magazine. So something to think about and perhaps something to aim for. Next up, we're going right back to one of our very first episodes of 2023 and probably the most challenging but interesting interview I've ever done. Ogilvy chairman Rory Sutherland needs no introduction, but just in case you did miss it, he dialed in to answer our burning questions about how brands and advertisers should cater to the neurodivergent. In classic Sutherland style, we got more than we bargained for, and I'm so glad we did because what came of it is about an hour and nine minutes of pure gold dust. There's a new book by Helen Edwards, which has only just arrived yesterday, which is, I think, called from, is it from margins to mainstream? But the argument is, which I've also advanced, that actually one of the most reliable ways to innovate is to take a niche, Mm -hmm. cater to that niche, which is generally underserved. And in many cases, not all, you will find, therefore, that you actually appeal to a far larger audience than the niche for whom the product was initially designed, because... If you design for the disabled, okay, in a weird way, you design for everyone in the sense that we are all di- disabled some of the time. And the example I give in my book is I think it's now mandatory in public buildings for fire regulations and goodness knows what else that you have door handles, not door knobs. And the reason being that people who, through arthritis or through amputation or whatever else, have lost the use of their hands can't operate a doorknob safely and quickly, but they cannot operate a door handle with any body part you choose. Okay. When you think about it, anybody carrying two mugs of tea has lost the use of their hands, okay? Anybody carrying suitcases has lost the use of their hand. I'll give you one tip for everybody, by the way. Um, When you fly or go through airports, uh, wear a shirt with a breast pocket. And you're going to go, what the hell is he talking about? The reason (laughs) is that the breast pocket is probably, um, first of all, you don't want to put your passport and your ticket in your back trouser pocket because someone might nick it, okay? The Mm. breast pocket is the only pocket in male dress. I can't speak for female dress, but it's the only pocket in male dress which you can reach with both hands. 
Mm. And therefore, if you've got to reach your passport and your boarding pass and all that other bit of shit, if you've got a breast pocket on your shirt, it doesn't matter which hand you're carrying your bag with, which hand you're trying to open the door with, you can get hold of your passport and check it's there. Whereas an inside jacket pocket, you'd have to be pretty, you know, flexible to check what's in your inside jacket pocket with your left hand. So when you design for the disabled, you generally deliver extra added benefits to audiences far beyond your initially defined target audience. And I might argue that designing for the non-neurotypical or designing things for introverts or asking if you if you have a hotel, you know, do we have a space for introverts? I don't know if you ever stayed in one of those Schrager hotels in New York, but the Schrager hotel formula seemed to be make the rooms absolutely tiny and then turn the reception area into a into a kind of party. Which meant that if you're an introvert, you had a choice between either basically exposing yourself uh, to a party where everybody was much more attractive than you, even though you were the paying guest in the hotel, you felt like a second class citizen, or sitting in a room that was about, you know, the size of, you know, a closet. So here Rory was talking about installing door handles instead of doorknobs, just as an example. But it's such an insightful point when you apply it everywhere. He also talked about designing for introverts and to the point of our conversation, designing for the neurodivergent. I have to say recording with Rory was a roller coaster, a privilege and a roller coaster. It was definitely one of those episodes where we were biting our fists throughout and just never quite knew what he was going to say next. So when he started saying we're all disabled some of the time, part of me was wincing like, oh, are we? Can we say that? But what he's really saying here is incomplete favor of accessibility at every turn. We asked him how brands can cater to the neurodivergent. What we ended up talking about was how brands can cater to what Rory calls the outliers as far as advertisers obsessed with Gen Z are concerned. So the neurodivergent, introverts, the elderly, the disabled, and by doing so, actually cater to and make life easier for absolutely everybody. It really made me pause and think about how brands can do better and how we as marketers can do better, down to something as simple as putting alt text on images, for example. Now, adding it is not going to take away from the experience of people who don't need it. It's only going to include people who do need it in the experience. And that's the point that Rory was making. Now, you can apply that to absolutely everything. So the fonts you use, the color patterns. We know there are some choices there that would exclude dyslexic people, for example, or sight impaired people. But choosing colors and fonts that are friendly for those groups doesn't make it less Less effective for everyone else, it just means you reach more people by including those groups. Same goes for closed captions. As Rory said, catering for a niche makes life better for everybody. Apple is an expert at this. Their devices are designed so everyone from children to the elderly can use them. And even if you could navigate a more complex UI system, you're glad that you don't have to. Now, when we apply that to campaigns and content, think about how you can reach more people by diving into a niche, being specific and connecting deeply to one thing or one thing at a time, rather than aiming broadly, we know is far more effective. And as the subject of this episode with Rory was neurodivergence, we know niche subjects are often special interests for the neurodivergent, but as well as that, they're casual passions of millions of other people around the world, so you are reaching them too. Now over to an April interview where Hootsuite's VP of Marketing, Billy, dialed in from Chicago to share the new AI tools that Hootsuite implemented this year. Among them, a generative AI writer and another AI integration designed to actually come up with the creative ideas. What followed was a really candid and timely discussion about the implications of generative AI on the creative industry and also just some really great advice from a very seasoned creative. If last year's big topic was the metaverse, then this year's has definitely been generative AI. No consumer brand or creative has been able to escape it. And it remains controversial because a lot of creative professionals are still worried about it coming for their jobs. 
That's why it was so interesting to speak to Billy and actually understand the problems that Hootsuite was trying to solve when it built generative AI into its platform. So you not only can schedule your content on Hootsuite, but actually create it there too with the help of AI. Billy insisted the robots aren't coming for our jobs, but to be honest, brand managers already think they can handle their content and copy in-house to their own detriment sometimes. And with tools like ChatGPT, that temptation to choose the easy over the good is even stronger. What I want to highlight here is Billy's take on how we as creatives can use AI and the areas that it should actually be useful in. He said AI won't take your job, but another creative who knows how to use it will. The problem Hootsuite set out to solve is idea fatigue. And the biggest pain point of being a social media manager is coming up with fresh ideas for BAU day in, day out, sometimes dozens or hundreds of assets at a time. That churn of low quality content helps no one because you'll end up posting every idea you've ever had rather than refining those ideas and sifting out the crap ones. When brands want fame driving moments every time, it's just not sustainable. Now, Billy's right, that is a real problem. And it's a problem that generative AI can help us to solve. In terms of writing and content ideas, we can use AI to set us on the right path. Now, in terms of tools like Midjourney or even Photoshop's new AI tool, it's a case of, say, making visual amends or tweaking images with these tools instead of having to shell out for a reshoot. That, to me, is solving a real problem, not replacing your designers or illustrators who have unique styles with machine-made art that any other brand or competitor could and would make just using the same prompts that you would. We also talked with Billy about the sea of same on social and everything on social will look the same one day if we're all pulling from the same sources and all using the same prompts and posting AI generated content without tweaking it, without editing it or making it our own. So the prompts can come in handy, but the creative ideas and the actual wording still needs to be yours. So it is original, like Billy said, and you can ethically build a client for it. My word to the wise is don't let your creative muscle, i.e. your brain, atrophy, because it is all too easy to start crutching on automated tools and the way we keep our edge and the way we stay sharp as creatives is constant practice, constant learning and constant improvement. And now the last moment I want to revisit from this year takes us all the way back to June when I had to very quickly brush up on my knowledge of race cars to speak to Sam, Formula One's senior social media manager. We talked about a lot of things, namely the brand's total digital transformation and how to turn reams of data into excellent social first entertainment and how to turn casual viewers into super fans. Measuring passion is a difficult thing to do because it has that intangible element to it. I think understanding, it's almost like understanding what the passion is and what will keep driving that along is where we try to kind of put our focus. So to turn that into a real world example, we know that drivers and their personalities off the track disconnected from the racing if you look at it from a very simple like numbers point of view people are interested in that and if we take that as a proxy for passion going and surfacing more of that in theory to kind of come back to how do you measure measure passion is like that's one way you could you could do it one of the things that i love about social is particularly the way it's sort of moving to a to use the example of TikTok, a like for you algorithmically driven approach is the size of your audience doesn't necessarily dictate how successful you will or won't be. Yeah. It's not the only factor anymore. So if you've got a great story to tell, you can turn that into a TikTok and have an enormous amount of reach basically straight away. I think when you then apply that into a sporting world, Gutterstein is a great example. Haas don't have the biggest footprint compared to some other teams, but I know that some of their output 
it gets amazing results because they've got an amazing story lying underneath the surface there yeah. with Gunter and who he is and everything that's happened with Netflix. And they do a good job of surfacing that. And they do a good job of storytelling uh, when things happen within their team as well. And I sort of pick out Hass because of the Gunter example you just gave, but all of the teams themselves, they all have their moments and um, opportunities and events that they turn into stories. So the follower number to come back to the original question of which one's the biggest, you can kind of go and look at that and then sort of find yeah. out. But the, the part I enjoy is it's sort of becoming, it feels like it's becoming a bit less relevant because it's about how well you can tell the story. Obviously, you've got to have a bit of audience size and scale to kind of tell the first group of people what you're doing. But um, the story will always will always win. As Sam said, the way to connect to fans is passion. And we're talking about sport here, but I do think this point rings true no matter what sector you're operating in. We asked Sam such a difficult question, to be fair, which was, if passion makes the difference between a customer and a fan, and passion is what drives sales, then how do you incite and measure passion? And what Sam said is true, you're almost trying to measure something intangible, but you can see how well something performs. The main focus on this point for me is inciting it. So for F1, sport is just inherently passionate. So it's there already, that passion. The job is just to bring it out in full force and leverage it for their own means. It's harder if you're operating in a sector like finance or FMCG. And you might think that people don't necessarily have passionate feelings about their stocks or their cereal. But I challenge that for a minute because I think we do. People care about their financial health, for example. They care about their physical health and they care about what they're putting in their body. Failing that, they'll get passionate about monetary benefits or the flavor of something or the culture that they believe a certain product is connected to. People get really passionate about ease, about value, about convenience, and they get unbelievably passionate about sneakers, for example, because they're personality identifiers. So it isn't always going to be the same level of concentration of passion as it is for sport or it is for Formula One. But we can all take a few leaves out of F1's book and the sports industry's book in general and have a look at how we can incite passion. For me, it's not about trying to manufacture it where it doesn't already exist, but it's actually about finding where any level of passion exists and amplifying that through your campaigns and through your content. Well, that's enough out of me for one year. But before I sign off, I just want to say a huge thank you to you all for listening this year. I hope you all have a lovely Christmas and a fantastic new year or even just a restful holiday break. And we'll be back in January with a familiar face, Pinterest Director of Marketing for Europe, Louise Richardson, who's joined us once again to reveal Pinterest Predicts 2024. Thank you.